Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. I know that there's a lot of things that vie for your attention every day. And, you know, I appreciate you guys being here every week, spending 30, 40 minutes with me tackling some of these really important issues to your finances. Today, I have Doug Krause on the show and Doug and I chat about literally everything to do with mortgages and buying a home. You know, what are physician mortgages? How do you qualify the FSAs, VA loans, conventional loans, everything to do with basically financing a home. And if you remember way back when, when I talked to Mendy Jensen on episode two of the Financial Residency Podcast on everything you don't know about home ownership, we didn't really go too much into the mortgage side of things. We really talked about the actual buying of a home. Doug is exact opposite. We are talking a ton about mortgages and everything that you need to do to prepare to go through underwriting and to qualify for a house. This episode is brought to you by Physician Wealth Services. And for those of you that don't know, I run a flat fee only financial planning firm that works exclusively with physicians. I'm a fiduciary and I offer financial planning and investment management services for one flat monthly fee. This is pretty unique in the industry. I don't charge a scaling fee to manage assets, which is referred to as AUM but everything is included for one flat fee. I practice what I like to call true financial planning. I get to know my clients by having conversations around their goals, what they want to experience, what's important in their lives now and in the future. When we go through the planning process, clients typically gain clarity on what it actually means to them and how they want to live out their lives. What does their ideal life look like? I especially love helping clients that don't know exactly what they want or haven't even formulated these goals yet. I work with clients remotely in an ongoing relationship and have clients all over the country. I offer a free consultation to see if we're a good fit to work together. And you can check out more information on my website at physicianwealthservices.com. And now let's jump into the show with Doug. All right, Doug, excited to have you on. Thank you so much again for being here. And, you know, I get a lot of questions working with physicians about how to apply for loans and what's going to be requested and what type of loans are out there. I mean, there's so much confusion for people who don't deal with this day to day. And I'd like to kind of jump in first and just talk about what are the loan types available to physicians specifically, and then also just out there that they could potentially be using. And then we'll kind of go from there. You know, doctors have a unique perspective on this, that they do have a few other options that most people don't in that their wives or their male physicians qualify for doctor loans. And how those differ is typically you have lenders out there that are willing to give a little bit better terms to doctors because they're a lower risk loan. And that's based on the fact that most doctors are able to go out and find another job tomorrow if something happens. So mm-hmm. that tends to make banks want that type of business more so. So doctor loans 
differing from other loans typically don't carry mortgage insurance, which makes them very attractive and up to 100% financing that's also not available to the public other than there's a specific loan that I'm not really going to get into, but USDA. And then the main other type of loan that you can get 100% financing is for veterans. Mm -hmm. I would like to touch on that for just a second, that if you're a doctor and you're a veteran, then definitely don't discount the option of doing a VA loan because oftentimes a VA loan actually would be better terms for you than a doctor loan. But the types of loans out there for options are going to depend a lot on what you have for credit. FHA has its limits as far as how large of a loan you can get. It's based on the area you live in. Like in Kansas City, for instance, the loan limit here is 308000 So that's going to buy a nice house in Kansas City, but it may not reach the threshold of what some physicians are looking for. But where that's going to be a standout product over just a doctor loan would be people that don't have perfect credit or 700 plus. Mm-hmm. FHA is kind of a forgiving type of loan that you can have credit scores actually even down to 580, where most doctor loans, you're typically going to see banks want to have at least a 700 or even a 720 for some of them. Gotcha. And with the FHA, what is the down payment requirement on that type of loan versus the VA loan that you just mentioned? A VA loan, you can literally get into a house with no money at all. I mean, you get 100% financing. You could get between the lender and the seller to pay all your closing costs and prepaids. Whereas an FHA, you need 3.5% down. That doesn't mean that it has to be your 3.5%. You could get gift from family or spouse that's not on the loan, but you do have to have 3.5% down. Mm-hmm. Doctor loans are going to vary lender by lender, but I would say around half of them go to 95%, require 5% down. And then a fair number of them are going to offer 100% financing. The ones that do offer 5% down, and this is something that's changed on conventional financing too, as recent as last year, about a year ago, the 5% can now be gift funds, even on conventional financings. FHA has always been a loan where you could get that down payment as a gift. Now you can also do that on conventional financing. And you're speaking about the 20% down, correct? Or even 5%. So on a conventional loan, it used to be you had to have 5% down and that had to be your funds. Mm -hmm. Now mom and dad want to give you 5% down. You can get into a conventional loan with no money down of your own. You still have to have the 5%, but it doesn't have to be your money. Yeah, it could be gifted or you season the money before. So you have it in your bank account, let's say in January, and then you don't apply for a loan in until April and they don't go back more than two statements, right? Correct. Yes. They're looking basically to see that it's your money or it's a gift. It can't be a loan. So Mm -hmm. if you're getting the money from mom and dad and you have to pay it back, then that can't be used as your down payment. Yeah. They don't want anyone to have a better claim than they do on the property that they're lending. So as we look at these Let's talk mainly about FHA versus physician loans, because this is, I think, something that could cause a little confusion. So with physician loans, let's just say that it's one of these 5% down lenders. Why would someone want an FHA loan versus a physician loan or vice versa? So most of the time, the physician loans are going to have lending limits up to 100% on a lot of lenders to say 600, 650,000. Or if you get over that 650 up to a million plus, a lot of them will do 5% down. Whereas FHA is, again, driven by your 
it's called an MSA. It's your market service area. Mm-hmm. And based on where you're at, again, Kansas City, it's 308,000. If you're talking California, that number might be 600,000, but it's based on what they consider affordable and it's a basis of the conforming limits. Where you're really going to run into, say, a physician that would want to go FHA versus trying to get a doctor loan is somebody that doesn't have a 700 credit score. Because typically a physician loan is going to require that, where FHA you can get in with a 500 score with 10% down, but for the 3.5% financing, you need at least a 580. Yeah, and typically physicians have higher credit scores just because they've got a pretty good array of credit that's on time with payments through student debt. So typically I see most physicians at 700 or above, but that's a good point to make. And I want to make the other point. This has nothing to do with interest rates. This is completely different. So with interest rates and respects to those, whether it's fixed or variable, can you kind of touch on any of that? And if there's differences between FHA and a physician loan? Yeah, no. Typically, a physician loan is going to carry a little bit higher interest rate than even a conforming loan, and it's because there is no mortgage insurance. I would say 90% of them. There are a few lenders that actually have physician loans, and then they have mortgage insurance. But by not having the mortgage insurance, the lender is taking a higher risk. Therefore, they typically want a higher interest rate. FHA is actually just an insured loan by the government. They don't actually loan the money. They're just insuring the loan. So even FHA loans the rate is negotiable and it's based on the market. So FHA tends to be at a lower interest rate than conventional financing, but the caveat being that FHA has mortgage insurance for the life of the loan now. So that makes it considerably more expensive than what it sounds like. So let's just say today's interest rate on a 30-year fixed conventional is 4%. You might get 35 on an FHA, but the mortgage insurance is forever And it's twice as expensive, if not more, than Mm -hmm. conventional mortgage insurance. So it's not nearly as good as it sounds like on paper whenever you get an interest rate quote on FHA and after you factor in all the numbers. I just want to back up real quick. Can you explain what mortgage insurance is for the listeners? Sure. So whenever a bank makes a loan, typical loan would be 20% down, then they have equity in the property. If you don't make your payment, they have to come foreclose on your house, then they've got that cushion where if you finance 100% or 5% down, just the cost of selling the house makes it a risky loan and the bank stands a lot higher chance of losing money. So mortgage insurance is typically just a third party that's sharing in that risk. So it's kind of like an insurance premium for the bank. It does nothing for the borrower or the buyer of the house. It's definitely just for the bank to protect them. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a great definition. Thank you. So let's jump into kind of qualifying for a loan. And I know we've touched on FHA needing three and a half, doctor loans or physician loans needing anywhere from zero to 5% down. But can you kind of talk about debt ratios or reserves or anything else on those loans that banks would be looking for? Sure. Now, FHA, different than doctor loans, is a very, very forgiving loan. And just because you can do this doesn't mean it's a good idea that you should. But thank you for debt saying ratio that. Being, you know, let's say you make $5,000 a month. A debt ratio of 50% means you're spending $2,500 towards your house payment and your credit card payments and your car payment. So FHA will allow you to spend 55% of your gross income. 
whereas most doctor loans are going to have a requirement of no more than 43%, some even as low as 40%. So the doctor loan is going to have a lower threshold of risk there for the lender. But one caveat about the doctor loan that is a real standout is most lenders will ignore student loan payments if they're in deferment. So a lot of doctors, like if you're coming out of residency, for whatever reason, you've, you know, say you've taken a job and like my wife, she got a job where the employer paid several years in advance of her student loans. So we weren't responsible for payments on those for, I think, eight years. So on a doctor loan, they'll ignore those future payments if they're not going to come due within the next 12 months, where FHA is going to take those into account and that could easily disqualify you then. Mm -hmm. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're just basically saying, yeah, that doesn't exist. And while I don't agree with that, that money still comes due and you still have a payment and a responsibility to pay that back. It's an interesting standpoint that banks take with physicians that they don't think they're as risky and don't count that into the debt-to-income ratios. Whenever you start looking at the risk of loans, FHA default rates get into the 2 3 4% range. Conventional financing, maybe 1% to 1.5% people get late or completely default. Physician loans, it's about 0.4%. They're mm. definitely a low-risk loan for a physician just based on their history of performance. So that's why... Most banks that do physician loans are willing to give such good terms because not only are they just low risk based on history, also physicians as a rule are highly employable. Like I said, my wife, if something happened to her job, I think she could have another job tomorrow. And banks have come to realize that. Yeah, a real steady career choice. And I think that's really fascinating that, that that's the stance banks have taken. And it does make sense from a high level, you know, student loans and Physicians are accustomed to debt, and while I might not like that too much as a financial planner, they almost become numb to that and know that, well, that debt's there and I need to pay it, and this is what I've signed on for. And so they view mortgage the same way, and clearly with that low of a default rate, banks agree. Well, something else to consider too is not all debt ratios are equal. You know, mm-hmm. If you're somebody that's making $4,000 a month and you have a 40% debt ratio, then that means you've got $2,400 a month left over after you've paid your mortgage and your credit card payments. But if you make $20,000 a month and have a 40% debt ratio, that means you have $12,000 a month. So your discretionary is much higher as your income gets on a larger scale. That also decreases the risk. So somebody with that higher income with the same debt ratio is a lot lower risk than somebody that's, I call them, one water heater away from not being able to buy groceries. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully that's none of the physicians out there listening to this, but that's an interesting perspective for sure. And now that we understand it, I do want to highlight one thing is we've been talking about physician loans and FHA where you need zero to 5% or 3% down. That does not mean that the 20% conventional that you hear out there, hey, you need 20% down to buy a house, like doesn't exist. That is still the best option out there. But if you're looking to buy a house and you don't have 20% down, these are some other options. Do you want to maybe chat just really quick on putting 20% down and going through that process and how that might differ? Sure. I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you can put the money down, avoid paying mortgage insurance. That's just, again, it's you get no benefit from mortgage insurance. It's strictly for the bank's benefit. However, you know, depending on where you're at, 
you just literally can't save money fast enough to justify not owning a home. If you know, if you're going to be there 12 months, then that's a different story. But mm-hmm. if you're planning on being someplace three years and you can save 20% down in the course of three years, the house may have went up 30%. I mean, it just depends on your markets. Mm-hmm. It actually costs you more money not to pay that mortgage insurance in the right environment. But again, that's going to vary market by market. You know, if you're in Seattle, which, you know, we've got some DMDs there that yes. their market has went up double digits year after year, mm-hmm. as opposed to you get into some of the Midwest areas and maybe houses have been pretty stagnant. So it really varies based on who you are and where you live. Yeah, that's a good disclaimer. And I always make a point to mention personal finance is personal. What's good for me maybe isn't that great for Doug, which maybe isn't that great for a physician in Seattle. So it's all based on market conditions and what you also personally can afford. I did just yeah, want to make the fits all. There isn't a one size fits all. And I did want to make the the little quick pitch for putting 20% down because I know we've chatted here for a few minutes on just some low percentage down payment ones. And kind of switching this over to now we've understood the concepts of the loan types available and we've touched on some limits. And can we talk about rates for a little bit and then what an arm and fixed and that is and then and then jump into the closing costs? Sure. Again, like I said, doctor loans tend to have a little bit higher rate because the bank is taking on the extra risk. They want to make a little more money based on that. So comparing a doctor loan to a 20% down, I mean, I could tell you from my personal perspective of the loans I could make, a 20% down 30-year fixed rate is going to beat a doctor loan seven days a week. So Mm. I definitely agree that if you have the ability to put 20% down, you're going to save money. I mean, interest rates on a physician loan are going to range, you know, it's again, lender by lender, but let's say a 30 year fixed rate physician loan, you're probably looking at somewhere between four and a half to, I've recently got some quotes from some competitors as high as five and three quarters. Wow. Whereas a 30 year fixed rate, you know, the market right now is 4% or a little under, and I'm actually a little below market. So 3.75% on a 30 year. You mentioned ARMS, and I want to touch on that. Mm -hmm. Earlier on, say 10 years ago, ARMS were great, and they're going to come back again. But at this point, there's such a small spread between ARMS and FIX. There's very few people that I feel like are going to benefit from the risk of taking an ARM versus a fixed rate, unless it's somebody that just absolutely knows that they're going to be there no longer than the length of the term they're locking. So You know, there's products out there where you can get a 10-year arm or a 7-year arm. If there's no question that you're going to be moving in that 7 or 10 years, then by all means, look at that. But right now, fixed rate versus arms, there's just not enough savings to take the future risk where 10 years ago, I was doing 3-1 arms at 2.5%, but the fixed rates were 5. You know, it absolutely made sense when you were getting an interest rate at half of what the fixed rate was, but... Mm-hmm. Currently, a 5-1 arm might be a half a percent or less cheaper than a 30-year fix. So at that point, it's just not worth the risk. Yeah, I just want to jump in. So ARMS, and I made the mistake of an acronym without explaining. So an ARM is adjustable rate mortgage for those that don't know what ARMS are. We're not literally talking body parts here. And ARMS were probably some of the reason why we got into that mess in 2007 and eight. I know that the 
lending requirements where you have a pulse, you're good to go. So that didn't help it. But people were able to take these low cost options with that big spread that you had just mentioned. Yeah, today's arms are, you know, they're qualified arms and they're, if you have something that say a 5-1 arm is at three and a quarter today and it adjusts five years out, that first adjustment is going to be probably a 1% or 2% at the most, where some of those loans that you're referring to back in 2007, 2008, they were people that maybe didn't necessarily have the best credit and they were getting in on really low rates. And then when they came due in three or five years, their adjustment might be 6% on that first adjustment. And that was just not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were barely able to afford the initial rate. So that's something else that you'd always want to look into on an arm if you did think that you were going to move. But then you need to look at the what-if scenario that if I don't happen to move and my arm does adjust, can I afford it once it does change? So the banks are kind of taking a different perspective and you know, they want to know that you can actually qualify for that now too, as opposed to before you're right. If you had a pulse, you were going to get a hundred percent financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's good that they're taking that extra step. I mean, they definitely don't have to, but if you're looking at arms, make sure that it fits your budget now and, and into the future. Really quick, I'd like you, if you could touch on just how interest rates kind of are priced. You know, when you go through and, you know, I've heard it before, you know, I'm quoted at this. And if we lock in right now, we'll have a lock for 45 or 90 days. Like, how does that go behind the scenes? So we can kind of give our listeners a little view in the back here of how you price with interest. You know, banks borrow their money from places like Fannie, Freddie, and the Federal Home Loan Bank. But typically, when you're looking at fixed rates, if you want to know how they're priced, you just follow a 10-year bond market. So they're always going to be a spread over that. For instance, if you check the 10-year bond, let's just say it's two and a quarter, then a 30-year fixed rate is probably going to be one and a half to one and three quarters higher than a 10-year cost. So that's what banks borrow money. Whenever they loan money to consumers, consumer might be locking in at a 30-year fixed rate. The bank is borrowing money from the federal government or securitized by bonds from the federal government for a 10 or 15 or you know possibly longer but the longer they lock in their rate the more expensive it is for them to borrow money Mm -hmm. perfect and before i forget let's switch over to the closing costs here you know inspections appraisals and all that kind of groovy stuff here can you jump in and go a little bit more in depth on this here because i think this is really important So when you buy a house, I mean, you know, these doctor loans, some of them have no down payment, but that doesn't mean that you're going to move in for no money out of pocket. I mean, that's still a possibility based on if you get lender credits or seller credits, but there's other monies involved when you buy a house. And that's a couple items. One's closing costs, and that's different from prepaid. So I want to explain the difference of those. Mm -hmm. So closing costs would be your appraisal, title work. You've got loan documents that need recorded at the county, so you have recording fees, underwriting fees, just actual costs to get a loan. So if you're not a cash buyer, these are all required items. Now, if you're a cash buyer, you're still going to have what would be considered prepaids, and that would be your pre. Well, I guess if you have a don't have a loan, you wouldn't have this. But you, regardless, you're still going to have additional items besides the closing costs. And what makes up prepaids? different than closing costs are per diem interest. So let's say you close on a loan today. The bank's first payment, if 
today's October 9th, your first payment isn't going to be due until December 1st. So you have to pay the bank for the use of their money from the 9th through the 31st. And then on December 1st, you're paying part of your payment is the interest for using their money in November. So prepaids would be those 22 days of interest if you closed October 9th through the end of the month. You also have your first year of homeowner's insurance. That's going to vary widely based on your credit score and how expensive a house you're buying. But let's just for argument's sake say that's $2,000. Closing costs plus the prepaid interest plus your first year homeowner's insurance. And then you've got an escrow account. Most people escrow for taxes and insurance. Mm -hmm. So whenever you set up an escrow account, the bank wants to have a reserve. So next year when your bill comes due, they're going to have enough money to pay your taxes and insurance and then have a cushion. So you're also going to, in addition to paying closing costs and prepaids, that money that goes into your escrows, part of your prepaids would be a couple months cushion of your taxes and insurance. You know, that's going to vary a lot depending on what time of the year you close and what time of the month you close, whether it's the first or the end of the month. But as a rule, I would say you're going to run into prepaids in the range of $3,000 and a typical closing cost scenario would be a couple thousand dollars. So even with 100% financing, you're still looking at needing around $5,000 to close. Mm -hmm. You're not buying the property with literally zero down. And one point that I'd like to make, we talked about it on a previous show, episode two, uh, with Mindy Jensen from Bigger Pockets about the whole process of buying a home. This is separated out from the earnest money that you have when you put a contract in and have to put earnest money in. This is on top of that. Just wanted to make that point. Yeah, and earnest money is just showing the seller that you're serious about buying their house. It's basically money that you're putting down up front. So that would come off of your closing costs, prepaids, or your down payment at closing. And it's something that you potentially could lose if you don't meet your obligations of a contract. So if, if you put down $5,000 of earnest money and then get cold feet and you don't have any legitimate reason for not closing on the house, then typically the seller is going to get to keep that money. And that's because yeah. they took the home off the market. They most likely have a loan that they have a loan payment on and they took the house off the market so you could do your due diligence. And if you had backed out for no reason you know, other than I just found a better place, then they're compensated for that. But if there's a legitimate reason, then you can back out or renegotiate with the seller. Yeah. And that would happen, you know, if you have home inspections and you find serious flaws in the house, or if the house didn't appraise mm -hmm. and then couldn't negotiate based on that, a new contract price that everybody's agreeable to, then there's certainly reasons, but that's stuff you should discuss with your realtor before you just freely open your checkbook and write a large earnest deposit check. Yeah, great advice there. So we had already mentioned Fannie and Freddie here, and you had mentioned the Fed Home Loan Bank. Can you kind of chat on those and, and how these companies really influence the mortgage lending market? Sure. So when banks make loans, you know, obviously they've only got so much to loan. So how they replenish their money to loan is they typically loan their deposit-based money, and then replenish that by selling that loan to Fannie or Freddie or the Federal Home Loan Bank. And most people wouldn't realize the difference between them, and there really is very little difference aside from the Federal Home Loan Bank, and that's actually my bank deals with them more than Fannie Freddie, 
and it's exactly like it. It's just a way for the bank to have liquidity. But in selling to the Federal Home Loan Bank, we have a specific product where we have shared risk. So most lenders, when they make a loan, they sell it to Fannie or Freddie, and then it's no longer their loan. So basically, if three months in, you stop making your payment, then Fannie or Freddie's the one that has that risk. When we sell our loans to the Federal Home Loan Bank, we're more diligent about the loans we make because we're still on the hook for it. And by doing that, you know, we get better pricing, which ends up reflected in the rate I'm able to offer. Gotcha. So the better pricing is given back to your borrowers as a lower interest rate? In the form of either a lower interest rate or actually what I do is my rates are typically on conventional 30-year fixed lower than my competitors by about a quarter percent. Mm-hmm. So I can either offer a quarter percent lower rate than most of my competitors or if I just match their rate, then I offer a borrower rebate. And that's why I was getting into either the seller, you can get finance concessions where the seller can pay certain things for you, but so can the lender. So typically most lenders can do this by premium pricing. So in other words, if I told you today's rate was four, then most lenders could say, hey, I'll give you a rate of four and a quarter, but I'll give you a 1% rebate by taking that. So if you borrowed $300,000, the lender could offset 3,000 of your closing costs. Mm -hmm. I'm actually able to offer rates of what most of my competitors are offering and give you that 1% rebate. And it's because we're retaining the risk on the loan that offers us better pricing, which we're just passing back on to our consumer. Gotcha. So how rare is that banks would deal with the Fed Home Loan Bank and be able to retain some of that risk versus the typical bank would just sell it off and be done? It's a membership. So Fannie Freddie and the Federal Home Loan, like I said, they're all similar entities and banks can join the Federal Home Loan Bank. There's about eight of them across the country, depending on the area you're in. But Mm -hmm. most banks don't want to retain that risk because once they sell the loan off, they can go on to their next loan. So they don't have to be as careful about the type of loan and credit that they're making that decision on. If you look around, I mean, Kansas City, I don't think I have a single competitor that's willing to do that. As far as I know, I think Farmer State Bank is the only lender in Kansas City that retains that risk, which in turn offers us better pricing. So it's not that they can't do it. Most of them choose not to because it just leaves them at risk. That's interesting. I honestly didn't know that that existed until we spoke. That is really fascinating that eight banks across the country can do this. Your bank, as you had mentioned, is one of those. But if there's an ability to get a cheaper loan or reduced interest rate or help with closing costs, that's something that people should be aware of. And I really like the ability to help pass the savings down to the consumer because most of the time you hear the story of they pass the cost down to the consumer, not the savings. So thank you for explaining that. And now it's time for the curbside consult. I've got two questions for you today, Doug. The first question is, We have a physician looking to buy a house during residency. They have saved up about 5% down and they have 200,000 in student debt. They also don't have a spouse or kids. You know, what choices do they have with respects to their lending and mortgages? You know, with 5% down, you're going to have several options. I mean, assuming they're not a veteran, you can only get a VA loan if you're a veteran, but FHA is three and a half percent down and pretty much every doctor loan out there is going to cover a 5% down. And something I will 
say is when you're in residency, there's a trade-off of buying versus not buying. If that first job, you know, a lot of people uproot and move somewhere clear across the country. So you have to know going into that, hey, does it even make sense to buy a house when you're, you know, in residency? Are you going to be there long enough to make it pay off? Take that $200,000 house, for example, then let's just say your rent for something comparable is $1,200 a month. And if you can have a payment for that same amount, then probably if you can sell the house for at least what you paid for it and it's not a long marketing time, then it makes sense that 18 months or longer, you'll actually probably come out better off buying. But not always the case. You know, the people that got caught in the bubble in 2008, I'm sure there's plenty of them that really wish they had a crystal ball and didn't buy that house Mm -hmm. because then they were stuck with it. And if they wanted to move across the country, they just had to turn it into a rental, maybe didn't want to be a landlord. There's lots of options, but I guess I would caution people in residency to just make sure that it's, do you plan on staying in the same place you just did your residency? And if not, are you going to be there long enough that this makes sense? That's great advice. And that my two cents on it would be to make sure that you do some planning here and say, do I want to own rental property? If you do, this could be an option. I know people in the military do this all the time where they switch between bases, they get reassigned, and then they buy a house. And all of a sudden you look down, you have five homes in five different places. And if you're comfortable with that idea that when you finish residency in three or four years that you're going to move away and you still want to own the home, and this is really a long-term purchase, then that's definitely part of your financial plan, if you will. If you're looking at, you know, I'd I'd like to own my own home, but I don't want to be a long-term landlord or a long-distance landlord, I would really caution against trying to buy something in residency, especially with only 5% down. Doug, I actually do have a question for you related to this. Can someone, if they bought this house using a physician loan and then moved away, let's say three years later and wanted to buy another home, can they get another physician loan? You know, I would say most banks... Don't limit you to the number of physician loans you could have. In other words, and a lot of people have that same misconception about FHA. It's not a first-time homebuyer only loan. Mm -hmm. Physician loans typically aren't. You can have one and done. You can have multiple, but there are definitely lenders and limitations that say to do a physician loan, you can't own any other homes. And that's, again, case by case based on the lender. But, you know, most loan officers would look at that with you and say, hey, I've got a house here in Kansas City and I'm going to move across the country. Does it make sense from an underwriting standpoint? If you've got a $300,000 house in Kansas City and you're moving to California and you're buying a $300,000 house, that looks like you're downgrading and buying a rental property. So it really depends on your circumstances of can I buy another house? The underwriter is just going to look at it as are you cheating the system and using a doctor loan to buy rental property. Mm -hmm. That's good perspective to have there. I I appreciate that. Yeah, I was curious after I read the question, if you could actually have two, because I haven't run across that situation yet. The second question I have for you actually came from someone who had sent me a message after hearing show number two with Mendy Jensen from Bigger Pockets. And it was, we put an offer on a home and it was accepted and everything was going through and we were qualifying for the loan and all this great stuff. And then the appraisal came back and it was lower than the purchase price. And I need to know what are my options available to me knowing that the bank is asking me to put more money in now. 
So from a bank's perspective, they don't want to, let's just simplify the numbers and say you had a $100,000 house and they were going to loan you $100,000. If the appraiser comes in and says it's only worth $90,000, then if they loan you $100,000, they are now at 111% loan to value. Banks typically aren't going to make anything more than, you know, 100% is already a stretch. They just don't want to be into the loan for more than they can actually sell the property for. Mm -hmm. Typically, in a situation like that, you have three choices. You can either come up with the difference, back to that scenario of $100,000. If it appraises for ninety, then you'd have to bring the 10000 out of pocket. Another option would be go back to the seller and explain that, hey, it appraised for ninety. that's all it's worth, that's all my bank will loan me. So we either have to agree to change the transaction to $90,000, or I would have to come up with the $10,000, which I'm not or not willing to or capable of doing. And then the third option would be, usually real estate contracts have an out clause in them that if the property doesn't appraise, then that's a reason that you can cancel the contract. So if you can't come to terms with the seller on something that's agreeable to everybody, then that's usually a part ways and go find a different house. Mm -hmm. And that's the appraisal contingency that is on there. Right. Yeah. One thing I'd like to add to this is, and this could be right or wrong, but I look at it as if the appraisal comes in and using your example at 90,000 and you had a purchase price of a hundred, most money in real estate isn't made when you sell the house. Most money made in real estate is when you buy the house. And while we've kind of taken the assumption that you're buying your primary residence, I actually looked at this question and was like, you know, from an investment standpoint, you're probably making the wrong purchase. If the market's telling you it's worth 90 and you're trying to buy it at 100, I would definitely go back, renegotiate and have the seller come down in price or I would walk. I've had clients bring me stuff where a turnkey operator, someone who went, bought a fix and flip home, they went in, bought it cheap, renovated it, made it nice. Now they're flipping it out and that might be what my client was buying. They might offer a turnkey operation where they'll manage it and all this stuff. But I've seen this come up where, in our example, they bought it at 50000 and put 20000 of work into it, and they're in it for seventy. The market says it's worth ninety, but they're trying to sell it for 100 And the bank is going to go, no, 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 that's too much movement inside of there, and they're not comfortable going over appraised for other reasons that Doug had mentioned. But I always look at it as if the appraisal comes in and you're above that, you're overpaying. So I would always try to go back or I'd find another home. Yeah. I mean, that's why you're hiring the appraiser to make sure that you're not overpaying and who wants to overpay for anything. Exactly. Well, Doug, I really appreciate you coming on today. I think everyone's going to learn a ton from you. Can you just briefly tell us where they can find out more about you? And I know that if they have questions, Doug is going to be in our private Facebook group, Financial Residency VIP Community. Search that in Facebook and come join us. Doug will be inside there to answer any questions as well. But Doug, where else can they find you? Uh, you can find me on my website, which is just by name. So it's www.dougkraus.com and it's C-R-O-U-S-E. Then I have all my contact information. Feel free to use me as a resource. Even if you've got another lender and you just want to get a second opinion on something, I definitely don't mind, you know, taking some time to answer and make sure that, you know, you're being treated fairly if you are using someone else. I appreciate it, Doug. That's kind of what I do with some of my financial planning stuff as well as, you know, it doesn't hurt to get a second opinion on something. And I appreciate you offering that to the listeners. And I'll definitely link to your contact information in the show notes as well. 
Great, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, if you couldn't tell that Doug and I like nerding out about this stuff, I don't know what'll get you there. That was an amazing, fun conversation I had with Doug. Doug, thanks again for being on the show. I really hope that you guys listening took away some key points out there. I know that the mortgage side of this business is is tough. There's a lot of things that they require. The rules are constantly changing. And, you know, there's not a ton of great information out there without someone really trying to pitch you something or sell you something. So, you know, Doug has agreed to be a resource for us continually inside of the financial residency Facebook group. And I appreciate that. Doug, uh, like he had mentioned, is married to a physician. We actually met through the Dad's Married to Doctors Facebook group and become good friends over the past year. But Doug is going to be in the group, the financial residency group. And I really encourage you guys to ask him questions because he is a very great resource. And I utilize the back and forth discussions with Doug all the time. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking with Holly Johnson from Club Thrifty. And this show literally is dedicated 100% to talking about credit cards, the rewards, what are the best places that you're looking for for travel cards and for cashback cards. And I'm going to preface this by saying it now, I do not encourage anyone to take out a credit card that they couldn't afford to pay off that month. And I don't want you to manufacture spending just to hit these rewards. Like don't go off and spend the $4,000 a month if you had no plan to do that in the first place just to get rewards. The best reward that you can have is by not spending the dollar trying to chase that one and a half or two cents that you'll get back for every dollar. But next week we do have a good show. So have a great rest of your week and see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.